Hey, so tonight's a little bit different. If you guys remember, uh, we finished a series and then we allowed you guys to submit questions that are deep faith questions that a lot of us have, but sometimes are too either nervous or scared to ask because we feel like we'll just get some bad answers. Well, not saying that Brett and I are going to give you the best answer. Is it okay if at one point tonight one of us say we don't know? Is that okay? Because we don't know everything. We get paid to think we know everything, but we don't. Right? That's about accurate. It's in the job description. You should know everything. Uh, but at some point, we will tell you that we don't know, and that's okay. But if there's a question that you guys have asked, which have been great questions. For the most part. For the most part. The first question we got was, are Saturdays for the boys? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> but if there is a question that we don't know the answer to, hopefully we'll be able to walk you guys through, helping us all find the answer together. If there is a question that you guys submitted that doesn't get asked, which I think we hit every single one. I'm sorry. It's not that it's not personal. I don't know who submitted these are all anonymously. Uh, there have been a couple that are not on our list that were submitted since we printed this off, and we'll make sure we hit that. Another thing was some of them have been grouped together because some of them are very similar, just in content and nature, and we'll kind of group those together and kind of hit it broad because there's a lot of questions, and we may not get through all of them tonight. But our lovely assistants, Hudson and Grace, are going to lead the discussion before they do that, uh, let's just pray together, and then we'll get rolling here. Father God, I just thank you for this opportunity that we have to spend time together, spend time in your word, and also spend time just seeking out to know who you are, just as that song we just sang was, we want to know you more. We want to know you better. We want to know more about you. We want to feel you. We want to hear you. We want to know that you are always there. So God, be with us as we spend time uh, in your in this discussion. Give Brett and I the wisdom that we need, and give open ears to everyone who hears us. Sometimes let me pray. Amen. You're in charge now. Okay. The first question is, how do we know there's a God or even an afterlife? Want me to go first? Yeah, I want you to go first. Okay. Um, so I think this is a great question, and I think it's a great question because it's something... Can you all hear me okay? Yeah. I'm usually pretty loud. I usually don't have trouble people hearing me. But I think a lot of people have asked this question. Pretty much everyone that's ever grown up in church or, or has... Shown faith, they've probably asked um, this question. And uh, whenever I think about this question or answer this question, uh, one of the first things I always think about is a quote uh, from a guy named C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you know who C.S. Lewis is. He wrote a bunch of books. Uh, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever seen those. Um, but he said that I believe in Christianity or believe in God uh, like I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And what that means, and, and the reason I, I share that is because um, I think if you look for God, if you look for evidence of God, you'll find it. I think that our creation, I think that the way that our world is set up, the moments and the experiences that we have, the situations that we find ourselves in, the conversations that we have, um, I think they lend itself to a creator creating those moments. And so in the same way that like, a painting or a, or a song by an artist is unmistakably theirs. I think a creator, God, who's, who's really an artist in and of himself, I think we can see in the situations and the, in the creation that we experience, we can see that it's unmistakably him. So that would be one way to answer that. My, my addition to that, so starting from the framework of there has to be something. Yeah. Nothing cannot exist like, they got to say this. So someone says, what happened before time began? That's the that's, that's statement. That question actually doesn't make sense because nothing can be before time. Nothing can be before the beginning. There has to be a beginning. And then you think about, like, when they talk about science, so it's a, well, space, time, and matter all came into being at once, which I agree when God spoke space, time, and nothing could have happened before that. So something had to be there to create that. And the only thing that could have been there is something that was infinite, Thus being, in my mind, a God, where in our finite understanding, I can't wrap my mind around all of that. So there had to be something that created something. And that's how I've always held on to that. And just the idea of the afterlife kind of comes from the same point. So my perspective, obviously, is that I believe that there is a God. And out of that, I believe Jesus Christ is a son of God. And Jesus spoke very heavily about the afterlife, obviously talking about two alternatives, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But he spoke very clearly about that. And so 
from my perspective of knowing what I believe about God from what I've seen, Romans chapter 1 says everything can be known about God from what has been made. Uh, he talks about different opportunities in life that we can see God. Uh, they just sang a song called Touch of Heaven. If you've ever been on my Facebook page, you know I, read, I wrote something recently about Touch of Heaven. That's a song that Sadie was born to. Uh, we had worship music playing while, while she was delivering. I saw my daughter's face to that song, and you can't tell me that God was not in that moment. God was not revealing himself to me in that life because in my mind, life cannot exist out of nothing. There had to be something that created that. And, uh, but yeah, we'll just go with that and we'll keep on rolling. Can I, can I add something? That's I guess. <laughs> so another thing I'll just say too is like if you're like me and you're more analytically minded, or you're very rational, like, um, I'm always trying to eliminate unknown variables before I make decisions. I want to make the decision that I think has the most likelihood of being successful. Um, the fact of the matter is, is, like, I don't remember the exact number. I should have looked it up beforehand. But, like, talking about a Big Bang theory, like, like something, something being created out of nothing or something being created by chance, like, to have uh, life sustained life on a planet like ours is like a one in uh, like some number that we don't even know chance of that happening by chance. And so I would say that it requires more faith to be someone who doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe that God created the world than it does believe that there's some sort of creator who did it intentionally. Because the, 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 I, would not, I would not bet on the odds that it would happen by chance because it's just too improbable. And if you ever want to read a book, it's free. I can send you the link. It's actually called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist because it actually takes, in, in the, the uh, mindset of the book, it takes more faith to disprove God than it does actually believe in it. But that's beside the point. Go ahead. Um, the next question we have is how does Jesus do what he does? So I don't want to sound like smart, Alec, but because he's God. <laughs> Yeah, so um, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't, I'm not trying to like downplay the question because that is a very good question. So if we understand Scripture to say what it says, then we believe that Jesus is not only fully human, we also believe he's fully God. He's God in flesh. I love Colossians chapter 1. If you come the next Sunday mornings, uh, next four Sunday mornings here at church, I'm teaching through Colossians, one of my favorite books. But it says he is the visible expression of the invisible God, that he is Jesus. Jesus is God in flesh. And so if he's God, fully God, fully man, he can do all the things that he does. If he's just fully man, he can't do anything that we can't do. You know, if he's fully man, he can't live a perfect life because we can't. So he had to be fully God, fully man. Only a fully man, fully God can do that. Ditto. Ditto. Yeah. Don't have anything to add to that. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Um, is that really loud? Just hold it down a little bit. You're good. Okay. How old is the earth? I would like to use one of my first uh, I don't knows tonight to answer that question because I really have no idea. Um, there's a lot of different theory. One thing I'll just say like before we even dive into anything about this, and I, and I firmly believe this, if, if you go home and tell your parents this and they get mad at me, tell them to come talk to me, but I, but I believe this with my whole heart, so I'll stand behind it. Uh, your faith and... Uh, your your uh, Christianity doesn't hinge on a literal six day creation. Um, it doesn't it doesn't hinge on on the earth being a certain amount of years old. I, I believe that we can take scripture at its word when it says that the earth was created in six days. Um, that it was created in six days, and you can do some dating to get you to a point where it's like what I think it's like seven thousand according 7, to some 000, people. 10,000, something like that. But what I would what I would just say is before we dive into any of that or any more detail and that faith in Christ is what matters um, and so you can believe in God and you can believe in Christ and you can go to heaven without having a clear understanding of how old the earth is um, and so that's just something I think that's important that we, we understand that not all things in faith are equal um, of equal importance and this is one of those things I think while it's important to talk about while it's important to have an understanding of um, I don't think that it is essential that we have a, an accurate understanding of it. Yeah, and th there's kind of two trains of thought, just so you know. There's just old earth, new earth. And then the Christians have been divided over this for centuries. It's nothing that all of a sudden Seth Hammer asked this question. I'm not saying you did. It's like if Seth Hammer all of a sudden just asked this question, we're like, oh, never thought about that before. No, this is something that's been debated about for centuries. 
And as Brett said, it's not something that will alter or change my faith or my salvation. Because I was taken, if you know me, I have, I've had Christian education through college. I actually intentionally took a C when I had the chance to get an A because I wanted to prove to the teacher that their purpose was wrong. So I had to write a paper on how old the earth was, what the term in Genesis chapter 1, what the term day means. Was it 24 hours or was a day meaning, you know, just kind of extended time? Was it really a day? I wrote an entire paper about how that wasn't the point of the book of Genesis and how the point of Genesis is to tell you that God created. It wasn't about how, why, when, where. It was God created. I looked at Kate. I'll never forget this. I'm sitting on the couch next to her. I said, I'm about ready to get a C and I could easily get an A. And at my point, it wasn't, you know, some of you are like, that would make me cry. No, like, I'm not devaluing my education, but the point of being right or wrong wasn't the issue. It was you're missing the point when trying so hard to be right or wrong. And sometimes, when we, as you heard me say before, not everything is black and white. That's a black and white statement. Not everything is black and white. There's no clear, here it is. You know, you can go down to the Creation Museum in, in Kentucky. You can, Genesis 1 through 11, you can hear them talk about answers. I think it's answers in Genesis, sorry. How old they claim the earth to be, and there's evidence to support it. There's evidence to support otherwise, but that's not the point. The point is that God created all things, and God had a reason for why he created all things, and he had a purpose for why he created all things. That's yeah, my and answer. I would just, just add to that in, in very general terms. I think it's important that we understand that the things that are essential that you believe are totally black and white in Scripture. The, the things that it, it is essential, if you want to be a Christian, that you come to understand, God has made it easy for you to understand um, the things that are maybe not so are the things that are a little more in the gray. Yeah. Um, the next question we have is, were Adam and Eve the first people on earth, or were they the first people elected by God to live in the Garden of Eden? So my understanding, and here's where I'll... So a lot of people actually can take the same route we just took with creation with Adam and Eve. I don't for the sole purpose of if you take Adam and Eve out of the equation... Like, if you, if you say that they are not the first man and woman, if you take them out of the equation, that actually completely screws up the lineage of Jesus. That's found in Luke chapter 3. Just completely, it makes no point. There's no point in it. Also, second thing, is if you take them out of the equation, it actually pulls out the entire story of redemption because when it pulls out the story, because there's no sin. If there's, Adam, if there's no Adam and Eve, where does, the sin, where does sin enter the world? Where does that come from? Why is there a need of a Savior? Because Genesis chapter 3, right after they... You know, bite the fruit, that whole shindig, you know. Right after they take that fruit, it's G- God says to the serpent, hey, here's this curse upon you. And he says, through this woman's offspring, you're going to get crushed. And he's actually referring to the Messiah that would come. So if I take them out of the equation, it's actually removing Jesus from the equation. That's just my understanding. Now, past Adam and Eve, when you get into their kids, it's a whole other ballgame. You know, I mean, when you say, were, were Cain and Abel the first two kids? Or no, were there already other ones because they get married? And where do those people come from? It's a whole can of worms you can open up after that. Yeah, I just think there's sometimes we, we like, we overcomplicate what Scripture is saying. And I think this is just one of those times that you can just take Scripture at face value of what it says. I mean, God, thinking that in the creation account in Genesis 1 through 3, like, God makes it pretty clear that he creates the world he creates mankind, and the first people we see are Adam and Eve. So I think it's, to me, it's just pretty straightforward that that's, those were the first people. And, and also the way he created them. Yes. Um, I cannot hold to the, the Christian view that I do and think that we have evolved out of a cell or we've evolved out of a certain creature. No, I think we have been privileged because we were made in the image of God. Nothing else has been made in the image of God except for people. Like, that's something that's very unique to mankind. We'll get to this in a second when you ask another question, but it's just something to add to that. Okay. What does God say about depression? How do you deal with bullying and anxiety? Let's start. I'll yeah, start. so this is a, obviously something I think that is, I, I was expecting <laughs> when I agreed to, to do this, I expected that we would be talking about this because um, I remember what high school and middle school were like, and... I know it's something I think rightfully so is is on the forefront. Mental health is on the forefront of our society right now, as it should be, um, because for a long time it was something that was kind of swept under the rug and something that was 
uh, kind of left out for dead. It wasn't it wasn't uh, used as a as an excuse or anything, but it was it was just something that we didn't fully understand, and and that people were suffering from, and we didn't really know how to help them or treat them. And so one of the things I would say uh, to this, first of all, you know, before I dive into a couple a couple verses I want to read, is that. You're, if you are struggling with depression or anxiety, it is not because of a lack of faith on your part. Okay? Like, and I, I need you to hear that tonight, okay? And, and know that for real. You don't need to feel guilty. You don't need to feel ashamed if you are struggling with depression or anxiety. It's not a lack of faith. Um, it's, it's not that, that you've sinned or done something wrong and God is punishing you. It's not that you're you're lazy or, or anything. It's it's a real thing. Mental health is a real thing. And it deserves real treatment. The other thing I would say in light of that is if you are struggling with depression or anxiety, if you are having mental health problems or issues, I would encourage you to seek out professional help. Now I would encourage you to seek out professional help from the extent of a Christian counselor. But that being said, you, it's not something that you're just going to pray away. It's not something that you can just read your Bible or you can go to church every Sunday and all of a sudden it's going to magically disappear because you're right with God. It's something that it's, it's just like physical health. If you're, if you're physically unwell, you go see a doctor. And if you're mentally unwell, you need to go see a doctor or you need to go see some sort of therapy, um, medication, whatever it is, whatever the right treatment is for you. Um, that is that is something I would just say is encouraging. And there are certain people in Christianity who, who kind of put faith and mental health at odds. And I just don't think that's true. I think it's just something that in our fallen world that we're struggling with, that we deal with just like anything else. Um, now, in terms of what, uh, of dealing with it or in terms of, of dealing specifically maybe with bullying or anxiety, bullying is just, it's just so horrible Thing because what we do when we bully other people, and you know this if you've ever been bullied, um, but I hope you know this if you've ever bullied someone else, is what we do when we bully someone is, is we devalue them as human beings. Um, we speak things that are not true about them that they as people who have been created in the image of God. And that's something that you have to remember. I don't care what your issue is with someone. I don't care what, uh, what, what issues you've had with someone or, or what problems or, or fights that you've been in every single person that you have ever encountered on this earth is made in the image of God. Um, and so what I would encourage you with that is, is that if you've bullied someone or if you have treated someone unfairly, that you stop doing it because you're devaluing that person. But if you have been bullied, I would encourage you to rest not in the acceptance of other people. And this is one of those things that, that says really, really easy and does really, really hard. But don't rest in the acceptance of other people. Don't rest in or, or seek out some sort of status or, or some sort of friend group. Um, you need to figure out what it looks like for you to rest in the image of God that you've been created and understand that, that however much someone likes you or dislikes you, however much someone loves you or doesn't love you, that there is a God who loves you way more infinitely than anyone here on earth can ever love you, and that is who you are. That is, that is who you are as a person. Um, there are a couple, a couple things I think about. One is Philippians 4, uh, verse 8. that just says, you know, finally, brothers and sisters, this is Paul writing the church of Philippi. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And so, so sometimes we don't use this verse to talk about mental health, but what I'll say is that... Sometimes you can think yourself into feeling a different way. That you can choose the types of thoughts that you think about. And like I said, you need to get treatment. Okay? But you can, you can help yourself out by making sure that you're focusing on the right things. And, and one other verse that I just want to share, and then I'll, I'll let Scott talk about this, um, is just Psalm 42, 11, uh, where David uh, is writing, and he says, my, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why... So disturbed within me, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. So, like I said, make sure that make sure that you're dealing with this in a professional way. 
but also understand that even in the midst of whatever storms that you're dealing with in life, God is still worthy of your praise, and you can still praise Him, and God's, God, he, God hears you. He hears your cries for help. He hears the praises that you give even when you need help. Uh, he hears your prayers. Uh, so that would just be some thoughts that I'll have. Yeah. So just to add, well done, uh, add a couple of quick things. One, as Brett said boldly, there's no shame in any of that. Uh, you guys have heard me talk, I think, enough to hear me say that I have, I have been in counseling because of depression I've been in. I've had panic attacks, one in this room right before I was getting ready to preach one night. Uh, it actually took place back in that closet. And if you get more accurate, do you guys remember whenever we told you we were pregnant? Yeah, 10 minutes before that, I was having a panic attack back in that closet. Uh, don't know why. And then December, right before that, I thought I was having a heart attack. Uh, I was having severe chest pain. I was shaking. It was 20 degrees outside, but I felt like I was 130 degrees inside. It's not something to be ashamed of. Uh, I thought that was something to be ashamed of, and that ended up having me on the ground crying, sobbing uncontrollably in front of my mom and dad, ended up in counseling the next day. And the counseling was the best thing ever because because of that counseling, I now know my triggers. I now know the things that cause a lot of the things that cause anxiety or depression. I know avenues. Katie can now tell whenever I start going down this different avenue of I'm not myself, and she can usually spot out and say, hey, what's wrong? Dave Medley is another person in my life who just says, you're off. What's up? And so one, just to add that to that, just have community. You got to tell somebody. Um, it's it's going to be a very lonely place, and whenever you're lonely, it's, it makes it even worse. So don't be alone in that. Um, the next question we had is, did God create evil? Big question. Great question. Uh, one of the ones that I was wrestling over for a, a lot because it's a hard one to explain in my mind because my simple answer is No. But when you go down into this, you, guys, you start asking the question, well, okay, when you get into Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, when all of a sudden the serpent enters the world, okay, where did the serpent come from? And if we can understand where Scripture points to, and it's, it's hard to even find the exact parts in Scripture, but it talks about Satan being an angel beforehand. And these start going, my mind starts going down, okay, so if man has free will, does that mean that the angels had free will and they chose to rebel against God and got something down, and now he's bringing evil into the world? Okay, but still, my mind goes, I'm, I'm going to confuse you guys here, but this is just what's going on in my mind right now. Okay? Satan comes into the garden and tempts Adam and Eve, right? What caused him to ever go into that temptation to grasp a hold of that and bring in evil the way he did, right? So it's even like the same thing with Adam. Where was the evil there? Like, what, what happened? It wasn't the temptation itself. It was... It wasn't Eve either, just throwing it out there because I was reading earlier and someone said that and I was really mad. It wasn't Eve's fault. It was they were tempted and they just seized upon it and the temptation consumed them and they did it, right? Now, the one thing I will advise you not to think about is philosophy will say, well, if something good exists, something evil has to exist. That's called dualism, right? So that's where we get the imagery, like in the old Disney movies or old Nickelodeon movies, we have the angel on one shoulder, the demon on the other shoulder. That's not a biblical concept, but it's a concept that a lot of Christians believe in, and it's a concept that we can get our minds wrapped around when you start going down these rabbit trails like I just did, and you try to figure out where that comes from, and then we start saying, well, I have an evil and good inside of me. Well, Scripture also says that a house divided cannot stand, so there cannot be light and darkness within you. So I will, I will add, though, the, I said this to Katie earlier, and I confused her, so hopefully I can say it a little bit clearer now. Everyone says there's evil in the world. I think a lot of us would nod our head to that, but what I actually want to be more specific and say there's evil in the heart of every human. Uh, it's the heart of every human that brings out evil, that enacts evil, that, you know, we talk about shootings all the time. We, that's a, something that's common in our culture today is gun violence. It's, I'm not getting political here, but it's the heart of the person that leads them to do that. And the, the, what happens is that evil that's in their heart is just, billowing up inside of them, that temptation is seizing them, and now they're so consumed they think it's okay to take another person's life. Um, evil is not just out there. Evil is actually within the heart of every man because we believe that sin came into the world and corrupted every single heart. That may not be a great answer, but that's where I'm going. Yeah, I, I, think, I think what Scott's saying is, is really true and really important. Um, and I would just add to it by saying that we, I 
kind of wrote this down for an answer for the, our last question, which I, I don't think we'll get to tonight, so I'll have to hit that another point. But um, evil is in the world because ultimately God gave people a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so God, in his infinite power, in this big church word we call sovereignty, he could have created us basically as robots to do whatever he wanted us to do, to follow him blindly, to love him blindly without any um, really choosing. We just would have been created basically to be robots for him. And the cool thing about God is that he desires intimate, real relationship with people, and um, he wants you as a child, not as a slave. And so rather than, rather than creating us with this inability to choose and, and um, just making us follow him, he gives us this beautiful choice to follow him. But as we know, and that if you've ever had a choice in anything, a choice means that you have differing paths in which you can take. And so the problem is that we sometimes don't take the right path. And that's why there's evil in the world is because we've been given the right to choose and we don't always choose correctly. The thing I will say to that is that there is going to come a day, and this is redemption theology, that, that, that there is going to come a day in which there is no evil. There's going to come a day in which all the bad things are gone, they're done away with, because all that stands is good, because God is totally redeemed, he's totally made new the world. But right now, because we don't live in that day yet, we have to deal with all the horrible things that happen, both that we do and both that are done to us. Do pets go to heaven with us? Not cats. Oh, my gosh. I will say that the actual question that was submitted, and and Brett just crushed that person's soul, was do cats go to heaven with us? Um, And I'm glad Joe's not here for that reason, because Joe would do an emphatic no. Right? So here's my answer. One, I'm going to give you another one. I don't know. Uh, Here's my thought process. So if you read Scripture, if you read parts of Isaiah, it's in chapter 11, chapter 65, it actually specifically talks about the day when the lion and the, 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 the sheep and the wolf will get together, like have peace together, and the lion and the lamb, I'm butchering it. Basically, it's one day all peace will be restored and all these animals will get along, right? All people will get along. It's kind of like the John Lennon song, Imagine, all that, you know what I'm talking about? No, you all don't? don't Some of you. The adults are like, yeah, no, I Look love that up. song. It's a great song. It's a great song. John Lennon, Imagine. But anyways, with that, here's the thought process that I have. So God creates all things. We are the only thing created in his image. Therefore, we are the only one who has that unique privilege of being in his image, being made specifically for him. And our, we have a spirit, we have a soul, we have a purpose. And I just crush some of you all because I don't personally think that my dog Cece or my cat Linus, who's fat as crap, has a soul, right? I really don't. Does he have emotions? Yes, he has emotions. Where does that come from? I can't explain. I have There's no idea. There are some down faces. faces. But hear me out when I say all this stuff. Ready? God created all of creation and said it was very good, right? He said all of creation was good. Animals were good. I don't understand how God could create all that diversity in all this animal kingdom. There are some crazy-looking creatures out there, good and bad, ugly and beautiful, right? I don't understand a platypus to this day. I really don't understand it. But with that, why would God create all of that just for it to be temporary and only enjoyed in this life? Does that make sense? So I believe that there is potential for animals in that. There's no scriptural evidence to support my pet is going to, my dog CC. Every time she pees on the floor, I think she's going to help. That's just my personal opinion. <laughs> but with that, here's what I want to say. When I get to eternity with Jesus, my satisfaction will not be found upon if my three cats and my dog and my other dogs I've had in the past are there or not. At that point, I actually don't think I'll even think about it. Is that acceptable? Sorry if I crushed you. You can send me a nasty text message later. Are there comment boxes of the trash can over there? Uh, the Bible was written hundreds of years ago. How, do we, sh- how should we interpret things that may not even apply to us in modern day? Uh, so, first off, it's thousands of years ago. Yeah, yeah. First of all, hundreds of years ago is a very, very uh, incorrect. But um, it was, yeah, written 3,000 years, years ago, ago, roughly started. Um, 
one thing I'll just say is there's a verse, 2 uh, Timothy 3.16, says that all Scripture is God-breathed, or all Scripture is inspired and useful for uh, rebuking, for teaching, Correcting. training. So, and, and Scripture also talks about the Word of God being living and active. Um, if something is living and active, that means that it's able to adapt to cultural changes or societal norms. Um, so I would just, to the back half of that question, you know, how should we interpret things that may not even apply in the modern day? Um, there, are, there are definitely things that, that don't really apply to us just in terms of like uh, ways they went about certain things. But I would say that every command in the New Testament, everything, everything that we see within the New Covenant that is um, said as a, as, a, as a prescription, as something that is that you should do or you shouldn't do, still applies today. Um, and that's even in the face of a culture that is con consistently telling us that things that are in the Bible aren't binding because they're not loving or not true. And he's quoting Hebrews 4, I believe, whenever it says it's living and active. One of the things that I like, and I kind of said this a little bit last week, but we were rushing towards the end, so I'm not sure if I presented it clearly. When it says living and active, how many of you have ever read something once, and then a couple months later picked up something, and it was the exact same thing, but now it meant something different? Does that make sense? I have read passages over and over again, and I've pulled out five different sermons out of the same passage because something spoke differently to me. Well, the idea of being living and active means it's always new every morning to me. That every time I read scripture, I'm going to learn something new that I've never caught before. It's like rewatching a movie over and over again. Every time you, you, you guys know I'm an Office fan, I'll, every time I rewatch The Office, I see something different every single time, and it's glorious. It's not anywhere near scripture. It's like one to two, not one A. One, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, blasphemy. Blasphemy. Here we go. Uh, the other thing uh, I would say is. When you're reading scripture, when you're talking about interpreting scripture today, it will never mean today what it never meant then. So if you're reading it through the purpose of how does this speak to me right now, how does this apply to 2019, Middle High Valley, you're not going to find an answer. You know, but at the same time, when I'm reading the, you know, the Israelites walking around Jericho, I'm not going to go, you know what? I think I should go to Williamstown High School and march around that thing seven times and scream at it. Just because it's, it's not going to, as much as you may, it's not going to fall because it fell for them, right? The, the purpose of that story was not for us to take it and run with it and go march around places. It's more about obedience, right? And so I can take that story, which has no, like, I cannot do anything. I cannot do that. I could try. But the point is to find what it was meant to say then, find the overarching point then, and apply it now. If it's about obedience, I'm going to try to be obedient today and whatever I'm facing that day. Yeah, and just quickly on that too. So the Bible, there are things that are prescriptive and there are things that are descriptive. So things that are descriptive are simply just explaining what happened. So again, basing what Scott said about Jericho, like that's just the Bible telling you that that happened. What the things that are prescriptive are things that, hey, this was commanded. This is something that you should do. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says that they should do something, that's prescriptive. And so it's saying, this is something that, that you should do back then. This is something that you should still do now. And so that you kind of have to read the Bible. Not, again, not everything in the Bible is equal in terms of whether or not it's commanded for us, whether or not how it applies to us. We have to discern what is prescriptive and what's just descriptive. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Is it okay to be gay and not act on it? So when I first opened this up, I knew, one, this question would come in. And here's a couple things I want to say about this. First, that myself, Brett, what we believe Scripture to say is that God does make us male, female, and that he desires that male and female will be the relationship, be the marriage. Um, in my mind, which might offend, I think biologically that makes perfect sense also. I don't want to go into the anatomy part of that. But... Uh, that's what I think and what I believe. But with that, the second part of that question, let me just say this. A lot of times throughout Scripture, people are being defined by their illness, by their 
you know, you get the, you get the blind person. The man, it says the man who was blind, the man, the man who couldn't see, the man who was a leper, the man who was lame, the man who was this, the man who was this. Over and over again, people are being defined by their condition or by their sin. We are not defined by our sin or our condition. I'm Scott, who's a child of God. As I, you cannot define me by anything else. I'm not defined by preferences. I'm not defined by my whatever I'm being tempted with. Same thing goes with, I have the I support and wholly like push for people who are dealing with alcoholism to go get support and go to meetings, right? But I have a hard time when someone says I'm an alcoholic, but I've not had a drink in 37 years. Because I want to go look at them and say, okay, just because you have the temptation to drink does not mean you're an alcoholic. Because if you're saying you're an alcoholic, now you're still claiming today that you are being controlled by that substance or defined by that substance. When I believe if you've been free from something, if you've been brought out of something, and you're no longer struggling with that, the temptation is still there. I have friends who quit smoking years ago. I'm not equating smoking because I don't think necessarily I'm going to say this real quick and I might hurt somebody. I believe Scripture doesn't say anything about smoking, and I think it's okay as long as it's in moderation. I just don't agree with why you would do it personally. But that's beside the point. That's another question. With that, I have had friends who gave up smoking, and to this day, 20 years later, still sit there and go, I would love to have a smoke right now. The temptation never left. Temptation is still right there in front of him just to have another one. And I have friends, and I, I'm not sure if this, I think you, this, you changed the questions up a little bit. I think this was okay. I had four friends, four friends in college. One, all four of them struggled with homosexuality while in high school. One, one of them, uh, all four, three of, three of the four became Christian, okay? And one of the questions, I don't know if it's in here, was why is it that their temptation did not go away? I'll come back to that. But one of them realized through Scripture, realized through the prompting of the Holy Spirit that he thought his lifestyle was sinful, okay? And so became a believer, goes to college, and it was his desire to be all out for the Lord, all out for Jesus, but he also really wanted to date the opposite sex. He really wanted to have a girlfriend, and just sad thing, it never worked out. I'm just being clear, I'm sorry about this happened. He was just... Bible study leader, he was searching for the ladies, almost to the point of being too far searching for the ladies, I'm being honest with you. Now to this day, never worked out, circumstances never allowed it, he's now marching in pride parades. And he's very much anti-Christian, anti-God, because it was just circumstantial on his part. Another friend I had was struggling in high school, and when he became a believer, he understood God's word and saw what it said there, and he just thought, you know what? I'm not attracted to women. I'm just not. He goes, I have this attraction to men. I don't know. He goes, I believe that's coming from the sinfulness of my heart and the evil within my heart. I refuse to act on it because that's when it becomes sin is when it's acted upon. The temptation is not a sin itself. He refused to go to that direction, but he also knew that he couldn't fake this over here. So he just said, you know what? I'm going to be single the rest of my life. To this day, 10 years later, he's still single doing great. Another friend came to me, and I've talked about this guy before, he came to me and was like, hey, I know the life I'm living is wrong. Uh, I've chosen this for myself. He believed that it was a choice, and he says, I've chosen this for myself. I think scripture says I've chosen. I just don't know what to do about it. And he was battling back and forth because he kind of kept going back between these two temptations that he had, right? And the other friend uh, dealt with this in high school, got to college, kind of eyes are opened, and is dating happily now, dating females happily now. You can't hold one for more than six months, but whatever, that's beside the point. I mean, come on, come on, dude. But all that to say, all of those four were some of my best friends in college, great friends in college. Here's where I think the church has gotten a hard time here. The church has for too long said, we're going to compromise on what we believe and say, you know, no, 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 it's okay. When what it should be, not the opposite, when we say, no, you're going to hell. Okay, that's the two kind of spectrums that we have. There's no middle ground anymore. It says, you know what? I love you. I love you enough to tell you what I believe God's word says. I also love you enough to believe that your identity is not in that. You're not defined by your sexuality. You're not defined by your addiction. You're not defined by any of the things that you're tempted by. If you're being tempted by something, that's one thing. If you're acting them out upon your temptation, that's a whole nother ball game. One of the questions I got submitted here at, towards the end was, is it sinful to get drunk? Absolutely. 
Is it sinful to drink? Absolutely not. But when something consumes you, when something overtakes your body, that's the same thing I'm talking about when I talk about smoking here. If, you know, why would you want to alter your state? Why would you want to alter your mind? Why would you want to do that and get so consumed where you can't control anything anymore? It's the exact same thing. All sin is the exact same. It's all equal. And we're all being consumed by something. Every single one of us have a temptation that we have. And if we're given into that temptation, it's now identifying, it's now categorizing us, and it's becoming our identity, and our identity can never be in our temptation or our sin. Long answer. Yeah, I would, I would 100% agree um, in that your identity as a follower of Jesus is in Christ. That is who you are. And so you're not defined by your, by your race, you're not defined by your gender, you're not defined... Not that those things aren't real and that God hasn't created us all in different ways and given us different identifications, but we're not identified fully as anything other than being a child of God. Um, I have a friend named Caleb who uh, wrote a book called Messy Grace. If you ever want a great book about like just the spiritual like faith and homosexuality, you need to read his book. It's called Messy Grace, and Caleb's story is totally unique in that uh, he grew up in a home in which his parents got divorced when they were when he was four, and his mom entered into a lesbian relationship, and his dad entered into a homosexual relationship with another man. Caleb became a Christian when he was in high school, and so he always he always says kind of jokingly that you know he understands what it's like for for a kid that's gay to come out to their conservative you know Christian parents. Because he had to come out to his gay parents as being a conservative Christian. And what he says is that it is equally unloving. First of all, for you, if someone that you know to come out as gay and you're a Christian, someone who, who is professing Christ to come out as gay, it's equally unloving for you to do these two things. It's equally unloving for you to first of all say, it's totally okay, that's the way that God made you. You need to celebrate that. You need to live like that. Because what you're doing is you're encouraging someone to sin. But it's also equally unloving for you to totally reject that person. For you to cut that person out of your life. For you to no longer associate with that person or talk bad about that person. Um, because we have to balance as Jesus did this grace and truth. And so grace says that I'm going to love you in spite of the thing that you're struggling with. Just as everybody in this room needs to love Everybody in this room, in spite of what we all struggle with, because we all struggle with a whole boatload of stuff. But truth also says that there's a standard. Truth says that there is something out there that governs the way that we live our lives. And we can sit here tonight and we can say as fallen people that we don't want a standard, that we don't want rules, that we reject uh, some sort of order or some sort of uh, uh, ruler. But the fact is, is that we want a standard. We want justice. We want truth. If our world didn't have a standard, if there wasn't a way in which we were supposed to live, our world would be even in more chaos than it already is. And I would actually say that the reason that our world is in such chaos now is because we've rejected a lot of the rules that God has set up for us as the one who created us and created our world. And so we, we need a standard. And it sometimes means that we have to give up things that we really love. It sometimes means that we have to go against something that feels good or that feels natural. But I'll just say this, that you'll never go wrong, and you'll never, have a, you'll never have a bad life. You may have bad circumstances, but you'll never overall have a bad life when you live life the way that the Creator designed you to live life. So. And one other thing, just to add quickly. Um, every generation has this big clash of church and culture. And... The millennial generation, Generation Z, we have had this at the forefront of our mind um, because of Supreme Court stuff, whatever. It's, been, it's, it's, it's a cyclical thing. I mean, it happens over and over again. Back in the 50s and 60s, marriages was at the forefront of the church's mind. Marriages started collapsing. That's why we see the marriage rates as what they are today. And I'm sorry if you've come from a broken home. Um, but the church failed to address things back then, and now we're seeing the things. Every time we have this result of, every time we have this big clash Decades later, we see the results of the things that we did not talk about. And, you know, I, I personally think the mental illness today has a lot to do with lack of followers stepping up, throwing that out there. Uh, it's very much connected. And that was a big thing back in the 50s and 60s. 
or marriage is falling apart. I think it's also connected to it. Um, just want to throw that out there just to say this is something that we've seen over and over again. It's probably going to come next decade, so we're going to see another big culture clash with the church. I have no idea what that's going to be. My mind can wander, and it gets weird, just being honest. Um, a guy might want to marry his horse. I don't know how it's going to go that direction, but it could be what it is. Um, but with that, if this is something that you are currently struggling with, you are loved by me, you're loved by Brett, your leaders, and there's no greater opportunity for me and these leaders for you to talk about your crap, talk about your struggles with us. That's what we're here for. Um, you will not find us being the ones who are going to just you know, make everything like sunshine and rainbows for you. We're going to be real with you, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to walk through life with you. Just want to throw that out there for that, too, because you got to love each other. Um, the next question that was asked, what makes our faith the right one? Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we got a couple more. We're good. Uh, so I kind of said this last week. <clears throat> trying to find my notes here. Every, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. Every major world religion, every major world religion is trying to answer four questions, right? Four questions, I said this last week, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Everyone's trying to do that. Now, every religion claims, like Judaism, Christianity, and Muslim claim to be exclusive, meaning that we're the only ones. As Christians, we say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Muslims say it's through your good works. Judaism says it's through God, who they re refuse to recognize Jesus. But then you get Hinduism, which is not exclusive. Thousands of gods, Buddhism. There is no gods. We're all kind of godlike. We're all can ascend and descend, whatever. Uh, but those four questions, are that every religion tries to answer those four questions. Now, those four questions, ha if you answer one of those questions, can you back it up with historical evidence? Can you, with ph philosophical evidence, theor theoretical evidence? Then with that also, like if I, if I explain through Christianity where the world came from, <clears throat> why the world exists, and is there proof to point to that, now that I have the, all the evidence to support one, the other three all have to be in agreement with that one for that one to be real. So I, if I say here's our origin and then here's our meaning, they have to make sense together. All four of them have to make sense together. And it is my perspective, when you spend time reading through Scripture, if you look at supporting evidence from around, all four of those questions from the Christianity perspective make sense. All are coherent. They all point to answering each other. And there's other religions that just cannot do that because the idea that all things have to be true is not a, that can't be a true statement. Like there has to be a wrong. Does that make sense? Like it can't all be yes. There has to be a no with there. And from what we believe about Christianity is that it answers all four of those questions. We can find life's purpose. We can find our origin. We can find our, our destiny and our purpose all in that, and it all makes sense, and it all points to truth. Nutshell. Yeah, I think for me what's, let me start by saying what I think is attractive about Christianity is that every other major world religion gives you a way to be right with its God, but Christianity is the only one in which God makes us right with himself by himself. So every other major world religion says, this is how you get to God. And if you do these things, then you can, you can get to him and you can be with him. Christianity is the only one that, where God actually comes and gets us. And that's really what we celebrate at Christmas. The word becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. Jesus comes to earth. He lives like us. No other, no other religion. No other religion is that the case where where, where the God makes the sacrifice himself in order to be with people. The other thing I would just say is that, um, like, the New Testament, particularly the Gospels and the Book of Acts, the letters that we see, like, those are all historical documents. I mean, we found copies of those dating back, you know, centuries. I mean, thousands of years. Like, I mean, just, they're just, they're, they've been around forever. They're, they're, they're as much a... Uh, a fact of history, the events that happen within those books, they're as much as a, a fact of history as what's in your history textbook at school. Um, the thing I'll say is that don't you think that if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, 
if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, if Jesus wasn't actually killed and, and didn't, wasn't resurrected, don't you think one of the hundreds of people who saw him after he was alive, again, after they saw him die, don't you think one of them would have slipped up as they're being tortured, as their family is being killed, as their family is being put in prison for their faith? And yet in, in the years, the years that immediately follow Jesus rising from the grave, Christianity grew like at an unbelievable rate, so much so that secular historians have no idea how it happened. Like that's, that's, a, that's a proven fact. And so if it's, if it's false, then a lot of people drank the Kool-Aid and a lot of people died for the Kool-Aid. I choose to believe, again, playing the odds. We'll drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, that all these, all these people who actually knew Jesus, who actually walked with Jesus, saw him every day, saw him die, saw him again when he was alive, I'm just going to bet that they actually knew what they were dying for. And to me, that makes that faith worth living for. So. And we're starting to run out of time, but we're going to start giving a little bit quicker answers. Uh, do my best. We'll just keep going here. This person says, I struggle with knowing God is always there for me. How do you keep believing when you can't see him? So I struggle with this too, uh, because there's times where I feel like he shouldn't be there for me because of what I've done. Um, two things. One, I, I can believe he's always there for me because he always has been so far. If he's not giving up on me yet, as much as I've screwed up, I don't believe he's leaving anytime soon. And the second aspect of it, that my faith in what is to come is greater than what I'm dealing with right now. That I believe that the faith that I have, even though I can't see what I'm believing in, I believe that one day that faith will become sight. That I'll believe, I'll see what I've always believed in front of me. And that can get me through anything that I'm dealing with now. So it's just for, for the sake of encouragement, uh, look back and see what God has done for you. Look at what God is going to do for you according to his word, but then that gives you hope for today. All I'll say there is Hebrews 11, 1, faith is assurance of things not seen. You know, it's, it's being sure of what you don't know is true. And here's the other thing. We don't, we don't hold anything else to that standard of I have to see it to believe it except for God. Like we all feel the effects of gravity every single day, every single moment of every single day. And yet we don't question it, right? We've never seen it. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know how it actually works really physically. And yet we trust it. And so the same is true of God. I mean, just because, you know, th there's, there's lots of things. We take people at their word on things even though we haven't seen the reality of it. You know, if I tell Lindsay Lizer that I have $5 in my pocket, I think she's probably going to believe me that I have $5 in my pocket. She hasn't seen the $5, but she trusts me. By the way, I don't have $5 in my pocket. But, so God, if, if we're trustworthy with things that haven't seen, how can we not trust God who is obviously much more trustworthy than us? Um, the next question asked was, when a friend has an abortion or loses a young sibling, is it okay to tell them that they are in heaven? Real quick. So my 100% believe that the answer is yes. Um, if you want to spend time talking about later about this, then I can do that. But real quick, just to say, first off, if you, if you know somebody or you yourself have had to go through the process of doing that, and you're holding on to that, you need to come talk to somebody. And you're not going to be met with judgment. You're not going to be met with hatred. You're going to be met with love. Because I am 100% pro-life, which means I'm 100% for the baby and the mother and every other person in this world because every other person is made in the image of God. So therefore, I have to be 100% pro-life. Um, it's not just a this and that. It's not either or. It has to be 100%. Second, uh, I have a two-month-old up there, right? I look at her, and I read Scripture, and it says that she's born into a sinful condition. As sweet and as innocent as my child looked, that's hard for me to wrap my mind around that she is born sinful. And now, some people take that train of thought and say, well, then that, if she were to die tonight, she's going to hell. I cannot wrap my mind around that because she has no capacity, mental, socially, emotionally, to even wrap her mind around the idea that her, she's sinful. That she has no idea what right and wrong is yet. She just knows that she pooped, Right? And most of the time she doesn't, well, she knows it clearly because she cries. But most of the time she doesn't know she does it, right? She does not have the mental capacity, emotional capacity, spiritual capacity to even understand that. And so God being a God of mercy, a God of love, 
would automatically welcome that child into heaven. Yeah, I'd just say trust in the character of God. Um, you know, God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. And so um, I don't know. I don't know if I could follow a God who would allow a small child, you know, who's, who's never willfully really done anything wrong to, to go to hell. And so, again, I think this just comes down. We don't see it. There's, I promise you, we, we won't get into it, but there is nothing in Scripture that tells you either way whether or not a, a child goes to heaven and hell. I think there's some reasons for that. Um, but I'll just say trust in the character of God, trust in the goodness of God in situations like that. And one more thing to add. If you are the friend, if, if you said when a friend, if you are that friend, you need to be the most loving person in the world if this is what's happened. Someone's lost a loved one or someone's done this, the worst thing we can do is try to justify and rationalize everything. Does that make sense? Because sometimes the necessary thing in that moment is to be quiet. If you ever read the book of Job, which is one of my favorite books, he has all kinds of crap happen to him, and his three friends come and sit in silence for seven days. I'm like, yeah, that's what you should do. Sit in silence, just be there for them, because it's when they open their mouth when everything goes to hell. They start saying, what'd you do wrong? What sin created your wife to die? Like, what, like all this kind of stuff. And his wife even says, curse God and die. Like, listen, if you know somebody who's dealing with something like that, if they've had to go through something like that, be there for them, be a loving support, be a loving arm to wrap around them. It may not be best to open up your mouth and try to rationalize it. All right? Keep going. A few more. Um, the Bible it. says that God spits out the lukewarm. Does that mean that the lukewarm are doomed to hell? So that's from Revelation chapter 3. Uh, he's writing to the church of Laodicea. says, I have seen your deeds, and you are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. I don't want to get into the, all the theology about what he's even talking about because there's a hot spring and a cold spring going to Laodicea. Just a fun fact for you. Laodicea as a, as a city was a very prosperous and very wealthy, very advanced culture. And they thought all of their advancement was from their doing. They thought they were so special. They thought they were the standard by which everybody else should be measured. But then Jesus comes in and says, nope, I've seen your deeds. You kind of suck. You're not, it's not about being good or bad. It's just like, no, I really wish you were hot or cold, but you're kind of neither. And when I read that, my first reaction is that people will take that scripture and use that today as a standard which all maturity, all maturity should be measured. Like, I don't think that scripture was given to us for us to look at somebody and go, you know what, Dave Medley is lukewarm. It's actually given to us for us to self-examine ourselves and say, am I lukewarm? You know, Brett preached this morning about are we connected to the vine or not? It's the same question. It's not for us to say, they have no fruit. No, it's for them to say, do I have fruit? And because if you keep reading that scripture, it says, it's not about dooming the person to hell. The, the scripture actually continues and says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If they let me in, I will eat with them. And what he's actually saying there is, I've seen your, good, I've seen your deeds. You think you're special, but you're actually wicked. You're lukewarm. Here I am, let me in, and we'll be good. So then it's a choice of, Am I going to be a believer or not? Because in my mind, the idea of a lukewarm Christian is actually an oxymoron. It's Christian or not. It's not lukewarm. It's not half Christian. I kind of believe in Christian. No, it's are you fully a Christian or are you not? And so in, in that, I say, be careful not to judge everyone else's maturity at the basis of comparing it to yours. You're not as mature as you think you are. And the second aspect is, Jesus wants to, all Jesus wants to know is, are you all in or not? Is it black and white? You know. Okay. Um, the next question coming off that one is, what is hell and is it as, period, as serious as people say it is? Hell is the place, real, physical, actual place, where people who do not know Christ as their Savior spend eternity. Fact. It is, uh, the second part of that question is, is it as serious as people say it is? No, it is more serious. <laughs> and it is more awful than anyone here would ever say that it is because we have no idea what it's actually like. Just as we can't fathom how good heaven is going to be, we cannot fathom how bad hell would be. And I don't say any of that to guilt you or to make you, I'm just trying to give you the facts. And the fact of the matter is, is you have to determine what you're going to do with Jesus. And you're going to determine whether or not you're going to follow him with your whole life and surrender to him or not. And I'm just saying, if you don't, that's where you'll be. And it, it, it's a hard truth, but it's just the truth. And so, yes, it's real. Yes, it's physical. Yes, it is awful. Uh, it's words that we cannot describe. Um, 
and there's like I said, if you want to, if you ask that question, you're comfortable coming and talking about it. We can talk about that way more in depth than we have time for tonight. But two more. The next one was rewarded. Well, yeah, <laughs> you rewarded this one, didn't you? Is dancing with a girl at homecoming a sin? So the actual there was question. A different word there. There was a different question, which actually led me to start singing an old song from Chris Brown up in the uh, sound booth earlier. So I'm, um, anyways. Does that have to do with, like, coffee beans? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, real quick. <clears throat> I'm, just guess, I'm just guessing from this that the question is being asked because we just went through homecoming and we've, there was dancing. First off, dancing itself, because I know some people grew up in this pattern, uh, dancing itself is evil, right? That's how you grew up, right? The dancing is evil, but David danced before the Lord, and he danced so crazy, he danced out of his loincloth. You can read that. It's a great story. Yeah, he danced naked, and he says, I'll be even more identified than this. But other idea of this, I know a prom. I know homecoming. I've been to the prom. Went to homecoming. I know what kind of stuff takes place. Here's all I got to say. I'm going to say this really carefully. If it is similar to what takes place between a man and his wife in the marriage bed, it should not be taking place on the dance floor in public. And, dudes, look at me. If it creates you, I'm lazy, I'm going to freak you all out. If it causes you to be aroused, shut it off. Go take a cold shower, run around the school, whatever you got to do. This does not just apply. This does not just apply to dancing. This applies to cuddling and canoodling, whatever else you guys can come up with. Amen. Listen. Here's another way of doing this. The person you are doing that with is somebody's future wife or future husband. And beyond that, the person that you are doing that with is a child of God. A child of God. Yes. A daughter of the King. She deserves better than you. Yes. Fact. All right, keep going. And my, my, my question would be to whoever asked that question. I don't know who asked that question. My, my question would be, if you're trying to justify that in your head by asking the question, then you already know that it's not something that you should be doing. So, All right, la- okay. last Post. one. <laughs> Am I still saved if I've walked away from God? So another long debate don't have time for it, is the idea once saved always saved am I still saved here's all I have to say about this kind of goes back to the lukewarm question kind of goes back to the idea about being connected to the vine Christian not Christian believer not believer it's not I kind of believe I want to believe I just want to say it's clearly you either believe in Jesus or you don't I'm not trying to just say there's two options no that's it, that's it. there's two options and it, it can't be just um, if you've walked away, I want to sit down and talk with you about what led you to do that, what kind of thought process went down, what can I do to just be thinking about you. Because I think even on the back of this, I think another one was, what should I do if I really don't know Jesus but I want to? You need to chat with somebody. You need to chat with one of your leaders. You can chat with me. I will introduce you to Jesus because we believe that we want to know him and we want to be made like him. That's why we do everything that we do. And I'm just going to fly through the last ones just real quick if that's okay. Well, I just wanted to say to that that... Um this isn't scriptural, but I think it applies here, that not all who wander are lost. And so you will have seasons in your life, the longer that you live, the longer that you're a follower of Jesus. You'll have seasons on the mountaintop, and you'll have seasons in the valley. You'll have seasons where you feel really, really, really close to God, and you'll have seasons where you really don't feel like you want anything to do with God. You'll have seasons where your prayer life is awesome, and you feel like you're learning so much and growing so much, and you'll have seasons where you're feeling like you're just talking to an empty room. Okay, and so don't expect that. Expect that there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows. Expect that there are going to be situations, there are going to be times, there are going to be circumstances, there's going to be things that you get yourself into that lead you astray a little bit. My thing is, is that if you are actually a Christian, you will always come back. If you, if you are a follower of Jesus, there will be something in you that, that convicts you that once you that you're saying, I know I'm not where I need to be right now, and I want to get back there. I want I want to go talk to someone. I want to take some steps to get closer to God. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, I'm not really close to God right now, but I want to be, then I think you should feel good about your eternal security. 
And, and the one question that was asked, is that the very first question that was ever asked, we just didn't put it in the list, was have we ever doubted our own faith? Absolutely. Recently, yep. absolutely. Yep. And I just want to tell you this. If you have doubts, those don't scare God. He wants to hear about them. We sing a song called Bigger Than I Thought. Our doubts and fears don't scare him. He's bigger than those thoughts. He's bigger than those problems. If you read through Scripture, read through Psalm, Psalm 40. If you read through the book of Job, if you read through Habakkuk, if you read through the book of James, all these Bible books that we keep referencing point to a lot of people going through a lot of crap. They point to people being beheaded. They point to people getting murdered, to people, like people stepping out in their marriage. I mean, a lot of stuff. There's only one perfect person in Scripture. And a lot of those people had to, you know, they had struggles they had, but they kept coming back. And I think that's what Brett just said. And if you remember the story about the prodigal son, it says he came to himself, realized how good it was that he had with his father, and he returned home, and his father welcomed him with open arms. So if you are the part in your life where you feel like you have walked away, when you turn around and come back, you might be surprised to see how close Jesus is right behind you. Yeah, the door's never closed.